Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. This show, to which you're listening right now, is not only Words on Film, but it's also the very last episode of Words on Film that I will ever broadcast for you. April Fools. <laughs> it's April 1st as I'm recording this podcast, so I really wanted to get an April Fools joke in right there. Put in an awkward pause and just fool you for at least a few seconds. I hoped it worked. No, but I'm going to continue words on film as long as there's breath in my body. And for this show, I have three brand new movies to review for you. Two of them have just been released in theaters on March 31st, 2023. And the other was released on Netflix on the same day. So I'm going to start with the movie that is probably going to be the biggest movie of the weekend. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Dungeons & Dragons Honor of Hmong Thieves. This is the latest big screen adaptation of Dungeons & Dragons. It's not the first adaptations of Dungeons & Dragons that's on the big screen, but it probably is the best. Although I will say that there was a film called Dungeons & Dragons that came out in 2000, had an all-star cast in it, Jeremy Irons, Thora Birch, Marlon Wayans, and others. And I have not actually seen that movie. I know it by reputation, and the reputation is not particularly good. Take that fact and add it to the other fact that I never played Dungeons & Dragons at any point in my life, especially not in junior high or high school where I knew some other students in my school who were into Dungeons & Dragons and I just wasn't particularly. I didn't frown upon them for liking Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, If anything, I mean, Dungeons & Dragons is considered to be the first role-playing game ever. And it certainly has had some influence on other role-playing games, especially video games that came out later, like Final Fantasy. So even though I was never into Dungeons & Dragons, I still respect its legacy, and I also respect the people who play it. I just wasn't sure if I was going to like the film I was about to see. So going into this film, my expectations were relatively low. But a little bit of a spoiler alert... I, this movie certainly exceeded my expectations. I knew that this movie wasn't going to be as good as the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but of course I give every movie a chance and I'm really glad I gave this movie a chance. So Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves is basically, and this is just a one sentence synopsis of the film. It's about a charming thief and a band of unlikely adventurers who embark on an epic quest to retrieve a lost relic. But things go dangerously awry when they run afoul of the wrong people. So if I were to describe the plot and all the various subplots here, it would take quite a while. And I try to dedicate at least 10 minutes to every movie that I review. So I won't go overboard with the plot and the subplots here, although I gave you a basic understanding of the plot here. I will tell you that the movie is directed by John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein. And this is not the first feature film that they have directed. They actually made their feature film debut with the 2015 movie Vacation, which was both a sequel and a bit of a spinoff to the John Hughes Vacation movies starring Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo. That movie was not great, but it could have been much, much worse. And I will give it credit. It was at least better than European Vacation for a number of reasons I won't get into. But then John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, three years later, directed a movie called Game Night starring Jason Bateman and Rachel McAdams. And that film was, in my opinion, very funny. It certainly worked for a movie you'd stay in to see on a Friday or a Saturday night. So while Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves is not a comedy like John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein had directed previously. It's more of an epic film with some comedic elements to it, but it is very impressive for a duo of directors who have never directed fantasy before. So the movie is about these uh, thieves mainly. There's one thief who is also a bard whose name is Edgen Darvis, and he's played by Chris Pine. And Chris Pine plays this role very well. I mean, he certainly has that swashbuckling 
persona to him, but he's also uh, very funny in a deadpan kind of way that works very well for this character. And he certainly is the driving force behind this movie. Uh, his character is, that is. And he has a wife who's murdered, and he raises his daughter alone with his friend Holga, who is a barbarian who's played by Michelle Rodriguez. But the two of them get into a heist that goes wrong, and they end up in prison. They end up in a dungeon. But he plots their escape, and the way they actually escape prison is very well done and very creative, and it also involves some sort of uh, mutant, and I won't give that away. It happens in the very beginning, where you also get a lot of exposition behind the Edgen and Holga characters, but the prison escape is probably one of the best ones that I've seen. Eventually, they team up with a sorcerer by the name of Simon Almar, who's played by Justice Smith, as well as a tiefling druid by the name of Doric, who's played by Sophia Lillis. And they are out not only to retrieve some sort of relic, which Edgen hopes to bring his wife back to life with, but they try to retrieve it from a a rogue and a con artist by the name of Forge Fitzwilliam, who's played by Hugh Grant. And Hugh Grant plays this role not only uh, very funny and very uh, charmingly like he usually does, but he also plays a cad uh, very well. But he also teams up with a, a red wizard whose name is Sophina, who's played by Daisy Head, who is a British actress and... Her name is somewhat fitting because her head looks particularly strange in this film. And so it's these two um, factions who are against each other, and they eventually team up with a paladin who, uh, for those of you who don't know, it's, it's a character specifically made for Dungeons & Dragons who is a holy knight who is made to crusade in the name of good and order. And the paladin in this movie is named uh, Zenk Yendar, who's played by Rene Jean Page, who is a big name right now. He is a British Zimbabwean actor who is um, best known for, particularly in the United States, for being the star of the Netflix period drama Bridgerton. And he made a name for himself there. He's made a name so big for himself that he eventually hosted an episode of SNL, but of course he has a large following amongst women, which is not too hard to see when you take a look at the guy. But this, I believe, is his first major role in a Hollywood film, and he is also very good in this, and probably even more deadpan than Chris Pine, <clears throat> excuse me, Chris Pine's character is, but he also happens to be very funny. And also, very much like uh, the character that Billy D. Williams plays in The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, you're not exactly sure whose side he's on based on his persona as well as some of the roads to which he leads these other characters down as they're trying to retrieve this treasure that will hopefully bring Chris Pine's character's wife to life. So I just gave you a basic synopsis of Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. There are several other subplots and some other obstacles to which this gang of thieves has to go through to get where they need to go. And at first, I was a bit skeptical of it. Of course, Chris Pine has generally impressed me with most movies in which he's acted, especially the newer Star Trek films, where he plays an amazing James Tiberius Kirk. And I knew he, he was part of the reason that the Star Trek franchise got the dust knocked off of it as a result of the 2009 film, but I wasn't entirely sure if he could do the same with Dungeons & Dragons. Also, Michelle Rodriguez, even though she plays a creature known as a barbarian who is essentially a human, she's still sort of playing the same character she usually does, particularly in the Fast and Furious movies as well as Resident Evil. She plays a badass chick. And she is typecast in that role, but it's, it's essentially a role that she plays very well. And I think she does very well in this role as well. But she also, probably unlike her other movies, especially the Fast and Furious movies, also shows a bit of an admirable soft side, especially when she is the surrogate mother to Chris Pine's character's daughter, 
Kira, who's played in this movie by Chloe Coleman. This isn't the first movie in which we've seen Chloe Coleman. It won't be the last either. So I'm not going to get too far into the plots and the subplots more than I already have. But I will say, for a guy who's never played Dungeons & Dragons before, I was very impressed with Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. A lot of things could have gone wrong. It could have been a muddled plot, cheap special effects, Ryan Reynolds... But fortunately, this movie sidestepped a lot of these things. The special effects were very impressive. The plot was certainly intricate and somewhat complicated, but overall very easy to follow if you were paying attention. And Chris Pine, even though he is very funny in that deadpan sort of way here, knows, unlike Ryan Reynolds, how to dial it back. It's several of many reasons that I really enjoyed Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves, and I'm giving this movie my rating of a knockout. It was far, far better than I expected it to be. I wasn't expecting a really good epic film to come out this early in the year. I would have thought that a movie like this would have come out during the summer, but during the early spring when there's less competition, I think that Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves certainly fits a foothold that maybe some other epic films that are going to come out later might push it out of the way if it were to come out a little bit later. But I was very impressed by Dungeons & Dragons' Honor Among Thieves. The special effects were great. Everyone who was in this movie was pretty much perfectly cast. And overall, it told a really good story. So... I came into this movie with my expectations relatively low, but fortunately, Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves exceeded my expectations exponentially. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Spinning Gold. This is very much like a true story, or it's based on a true story, but very much like movies like The Greatest Showman, to which this movie certainly reminded me. It's a movie that's kind of unafraid to fictionalize itself as much, and it also kind of makes itself into an unofficial musical. Granted, The Greatest Showman, which is where Hugh Jackman played P.T. Barnum, was definitely an unabashed musical and an, an, uh, a very highly uh, fictionalized account of P.T. Barnum's life. Spinning Gold is kind of like that, although I think it probably makes you want to believe it's more true than it actually is. But Timothy Scott Bogart directed this film, and Timothy Scott Bogart has had some experience. I mean, he, he certainly had experience as a movie maker. This is only his second film or his second feature film, he previously directed the 2005 film Touched, starring Jenna Elfman, which I haven't seen, and my guess is you probably haven't either. But what makes Spinning Gold especially special is that Timothy Scott Bogart is directing this film, which he also wrote, to which he wrote the story and the screenplay, about record producer Neil Bogart, who was the co-founder of Casablanca Records. Is Timothy Scott Bogart rela related to Neil Bogart? He certainly is. Neil Bogart was Timothy Scott Bogart's father and one of several children that Neil uh, Bogart had. And Neil Bogart in this film, Spinning Gold, is played by Jeremy Jordan. And Jeremy Jordan has had extensive acting experience, probably more on screen, excuse me, on stage than he has on screen. But on screen, he's been in several uh, movies and TV shows. The movie that I remember him the most from was actually one of my favorite films of 2015. And it was a film that he did that was a movie musical with, with Anna Kendrick. 
And the movie was called The Last Five Years. And The Last Five Years is one of those movie musicals that certainly is very upbeat throughout some of it, but it ends on a very, very sad note, which I'm not going to give away, but I'm just saying. But Jeremy Jordan certainly held his own alongside Anna Kendrick, and he is, I think, probably a triple threat, but certainly a double threat. He can act and he can sing. Can he dance? Well, that is sort of up to debate, but he actually turns in some pretty impressive dance moves in some instances right here in this movie, Spinning Gold. And in Spinning Gold, of course, Jeremy Jordan plays Neil Bogart, as I said, pretty much from his humble beginnings in Brooklyn, New York, to the point where in his 30s, he founds Casablanca Records, which is at the time the what the movie tells you is the most successful independent label of all time. I don't exactly know if it held this distinction, but up until the point where Casablanca sold some of its shares to Polygram Records, it was. And it certainly struck gold, even though at first some of their acts might not have been exactly gold at first. But Neil Bogart took some very impressive risks for anyone, let alone somebody who was in his 30s and had limited experience in the real world in particular, let alone the music world. And I think there are going to be a lot of people, especially some budding entrepreneurs, who see this film and will be very impressed by Neil Bogart's entrepreneurial spirit. And I know I certainly was, even though I don't quite have the same ambitions that Neil Bogart did. But Casablanca Records, for those of you who are unfamiliar, was a very big label. Well, it started out small, but it eventually became bigger in the 70s thanks to a lot of acts that Neil Bogart signed onto the label, including but not limited to Kiss, Donna Summer, the Isley Brothers, Gladys Knight and the Pips, Parliament Funkadelic, and others. I, actually, I probably should say Parliament because that's their their name. But in, in any event, so Spinning Gold is about Casablanca Records. So it's really not too surprising that they kind of went. They kind of bordered between being a biopic and a musical. And there were some times where I think that balance was pretty good. The only time that I think that the movie sort of fell off the rails was when they lost focus about what the movie really wanted to be. Of course, it is inevitably a biopic about Neil Bogart and as it should be, but it's narrative focus, I think kind of deviated between, and I think in sort of an unorganized way between Neil Bogart starting Casablanca records and also some of his relationships with the people who work in uh, Casablanca Records, as well as his relationships with the musical acts, maybe his ambition far exceeding his talent, some of his drug use, which, let's face it, if you worked in the music industry in the 70s, unless you were the Osmonds, chances are you probably used drugs. So there's no real surprise there. But there was also, I think, a subplot where he has a relationship with his wife, Beth Weiss, who's played by Michelle Monaghan, as well as one of his co-workers, um, Joyce Biowitz, who's played by Lindsay Fonseca. And the movie also could have been about their relationship as well, but it seemed a bit too dynamic a subplot to give as little credit as the movie ultimately did at, at some point. And there's also a part at the end where you find out what happened to Neil Bogart, after his heyday with Casablanca Records, the way that plays out, I think, was a, a bit less creative than it probably could have been. But I think one of the fatal flaws of this film is there are actors who are playing some of these big name musical acts. Some of them are well cast, some of them are not. I think all of them sing their own songs as opposed to lip syncing, which is great. But many of the acts that, or many of the actors who play the musical acts in this film, don't quite look the part. 
There are some people who I think were very well cast. For example, in the band Kiss, you had Gene Simmons being portrayed by Casey Likes and Paul Stanley portrayed by Sam Nelson Harris. And these two really looked like Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley, respectively, and they acted well. You also had Ronald Isley portrayed by Jason Derulo. And the last film that Jason Derulo did before Spinning Gold was Cats. And not only can Jason Derulo sing very well, and he's probably also could be considered a triple threat himself, in addition to Jeremy Jordan, but I, I thought he also acted well, and this movie was a tremendous improvement over Cats. That's saying a lot. And also you have Wiz Khalifa playing George Clinton, and I thought he was a wise casting choice as well. But then you get to some other actors in the film who didn't quite fit the roles that they were given in that they were playing very public figures. And one of the things that takes you out of the movie is, especially if you're familiar with this music and the personalities who made them, it's almost disappointing that the people who played some of these acts don't really look like the people they're playing. One such example is the actress who they got to play Donna Summer, who is Taylor Parks. And Taylor Parks is a good actress and she can sing, but she does not look a thing like Donna Summer. She's female and she's black. Other than that, she does not look a thing like Donna Summer. So every time she was trying to sing Love to Love You Baby and it was supposed to be very enticing the way she performed it. I was taken out of the film because Taylor Parks doesn't look like Donna Summer. I think they could have cast an actress like Kelly Rowland or Anika Noni Rose, not only actresses who could act and sing, but also who look a lot more like Donna Summer and could probably act like her a lot more as well. There was also a singer by the name of Ladisi who portrays Gladys Knight. And even though Ladisi can obviously sing and she's a singer first and an actress second, she also didn't look anything like Gladys, uh, the real Gladys Knight to me, especially the way she looked in the seventies. And there's also pink sweats who is a singer and rapper who portrays Bill Withers. And again, he does not look a thing like Bill Withers, nor does he really sing like Bill Withers. He sings some songs by Bill Withers like Use Me and Ain't No Sunshine, but it sounds more like a cover version than it does authentically Bill Withers. So I do think that even though it's not a requirement for these actors to look exactly like the people they're playing, I think they probably have to look something like the actors they're playing. And they got that right with... Wiz Khalifa, Jason Derulo, Casey Likes, and many other people who are playing real-life musicians. But again, with especially with Donna Summer being one of the main reasons that Casablanca Records became the dynamic independent label that it did, I really thought they should have had an actress who looked a lot more like Donna Summer. But I still got into this film relatively well. I do think that Jeremy Jordan anchored this film very well, and he played Neil Bogart extremely well, not to mention the fact that he has a very good set of pipes, which allows him to sing in scenes where he needed to sing. So Spinning Gold is not a perfect film, but I do give it my rating of a checkout because I do think that it, when it was, when it got what it needed to get right, it really got it right. Uh, and it, it faltered somewhat with the somewhat messy and disorganized account of Neil Bogart's life as, as well as some areas that probably should have gotten more emphasis than others and almost didn't really have that consequence that I think that it should have had. And I'm not just talking about some of the mistakes that Neil Bogart made, but I do think budding entrepreneurs, as well as people who love seventies music might really like this film. I just think that there were some blaring mistakes that spinning gold made that I think maybe another actor who, or rather another director um, who was not related to Neil Bogart and may have had more experience in the directorial realm might have done better and probably would have made this film an unabashed musical as well.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Murder Mystery 2. This is a film that debuted on Netflix on March 31st, 2023. It is, of course, a sequel to the Netflix film Murder Mystery, which starred Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston as Nick and Audrey Spitz, who are a former NYPD officer and a hairdresser, respectively, who are caught in the middle of another murder mystery, just as they were in the 2019 film that was also a Netflix original. Now, unlike the first film, or the first murder mystery film, this film is directed by Jeremy Garalek, uh, unlike the first film, which was directed by Kyle Nuacek. And Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston, as well as a few other cast members from the original film, i.e. the ones that weren't murdered, return for this film. And in this film, Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston play Nick and Audrey Spitz, and this time they are full-time detectives who are struggling to make their detective agency profitable even though the first film demonstrated that they had a knack for solving mysteries. So they're struggling to get their private eye agency off the ground, but they find themselves in the middle of an international abduction when their friend Maharaja is kidnapped at his own lavish wedding. So are they solving a murder mystery or are they solving a kidnapping? Well, a little bit of a spoiler alert, a murder does occur. Is it to the friend uh, Maharaja? Well, I can't exactly tell you that, but I will tell you that Maharaja is known as the Maharaja, so that's not his first name, but he's played by Adil Akhtar, and he does overemphasize the uh, Indian stereotype uh, here that's prominent in certain American films. But, I mean, he, he does that... <laughs> uh, Fortunately, I mean, think very uh, enthusiastically. So I think he's probably in on the joke. And I hope, I really hope that Adam Sandler didn't try to persuade him to be more quote unquote Indian. But either way, uh, Murder Mystery 2 comes with a bigger budget than the original film, which I think is appropriate because Murder Mystery, the first film from 2019, came after Adam Sandler came, made. Bad film after bad film after bad film, especially his uh, Netflix films. He, he just had a lot of films that were not only unfunny, but also very offensive. And Adam Sandler does go back and forth between making genuinely funny films and making just really, really bad films that aren't funny in the slightest. But one of Adam Sandler's weaknesses, especially in his early Netflix films, was his really abhorrent uh, stereotyping that he has in his films, as well as his perceived hatred for, or previous hatred for women, I should say. And Murder Mystery was an improvement in that it dialed down, at least from my point of view, on the stereotypes, and it also treated women with a, a certain amount of respect. And I don't think that a film with Jennifer Aniston would certainly have it any other way. So if anything, I think Jennifer Aniston brought the best out of Adam Sandler in both murder mystery films. I wouldn't say the same with just go with it because there were a lot of things wrong with the film. Just go with it, which was the first film in which Adam Sandler and Jennifer Aniston co-starred as well. Murder mystery two may be the last film in which they co-star, but to their credit, they do have some good chemistry together and they made themselves believable as husband and wife here. I will say, however, that Murder Mystery 2, I didn't think was as funny as it could have been. There were certain scenes where they were trying, but fortunately, Adam Sandler did dial down the perceived hatred of women he had in other films and also ethnic stereotyping, which was one of his main primary weaknesses in some of his lesser funny films. And the movie does have some dynamic characters who play it straight, and you never really know, as you're watching the film, who done it to whom, as well as whom you should trust and whom you should not. But Mark uh, Strong makes an appearance here as Miller, who is a special agent in Europe who is 
investigating the disappearance of the Maharaja. And he does join forces with Nick and Audrey, but you're not really sure if he's on one side or the other. And that, and the film certainly has you guessing, especially since Mark Strong is, as usual, a very intense actor. And you also have some other members of the Maharaja's wedding who certainly seem like they have ul- ulterior motives, but maybe they don't. So this movie certainly makes you guess in a similar vein to the Agatha Christie um, stories, but it's probably not on the murder mystery caliber of Knives Out or Glass Onion, but with Adam Sandler in the lead role, you're not really expecting that quality of a murder mystery. But to this film's credit, the, the story, which was written exclusively by James Vanderbilt, who also wrote the story and the screenplay to the original murder mystery, does actually have an intriguing mystery. I just wish this movie was a little bit funnier, but fortunately, I think Adam Sandler does act well here. He and Jennifer Aniston make a great team, which is why I give Murder Mystery 2 my rating of a checkout. The laughs were admittedly a bit lower here, and they were certainly trying a bit too hard with the laughs during some of the action scenes, rather than just being themselves and letting the action be intriguing. And I, I think that there there could have been a way for these action scenes to be both edge of your seat as well as re- reasonably funny. But I do think that Adam Sandler certainly didn't quite trust his comedic in- instincts here. But with that said, I've seen a lot worse from Adam Sandler and Murder Mystery, Murder Mystery 2 could have been a lot worse. But I think with a good story, with very likable leads who work very well together, as well as some supporting players who certainly are mysterious in and of their own depictions here, I thought it was a solid mystery. Could have been a funnier funnier comedy, but I've seen a lot worse in terms of Adam Sandler's repertoire. So I'll give Murder Mystery a check out and leave it at that. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed every movie that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and on streaming for the week of April 3rd through April 8th, 2023. So on April 3rd, there's one film that is subject to being released in theaters, but it is likely to be released on streaming. The movie is a, is a documentary that premiered this year at Sundance, and it's a movie that's called Pretty Baby, Brooke Shields. Now, the reason it's called Pretty Baby, Brooke Shields is because Pretty Baby was the name of a controversial 1978 film starring Brooke Shields, who played a preteen girl who lives as a prostitute in New Orleans in 1917. This movie, of course, because of its subject matter, was hugely controversial. The movie, by the way, also co-starred Keith Carradine and Susan Sarandon. Now, why Pretty Baby, which was about a preteen prostitute, was controversial and Taxi Driver, where Jodie Foster played a preteen prostitute, was not as controversial, is a bit beyond me. I guess maybe it's because Taxi Driver was unabashedly a film for adults, and it also did reprimand or frown upon the idea of a preteen being a prostitute in and of itself. But I guess 
It also tied into the controversy of Brooke Shields being overtly sexualized by the media before she turned 18. And that actually does make uh, a pretty good uh, point there because not only was she sexualized in the movie Pretty Baby, but she was also sexualized in Calvin Klein ads, for example. But this documentary follows actor, model, and icon Brooke Shields as she becomes a woman who discovers her power after being a sexualized young girl. She shows the dangers and triumphs of gaining agency in a hostile world. So the director of this film is Lana Wilson, and I think it's good that a woman directs this film as opposed to a man. And it's a film I'm very interested in seeing. It certainly is a very fascinating as well as a very controversial topic, but it still has currency in this day and age. So the movie is one that I will see eventually. I don't know if I'm going to review it for you on next week's show, but I'll review it for you on a future show for sure. And there are several movies that are subject to being released in theaters on April 4th, which is a Tuesday, but I think almost too many to mention here. So I will skip right to April 5th, where there are two films that will be released in theaters on that day. And it's, it's unusual for films to be released on a Wednesday, but it's not unheard of, especially when a holiday weekend is coming up. And next weekend, the weekend of April 10th is, of, excuse me, April 9th, is Easter Sunday. So I think that these two films that are coming out on April 5th are certainly striking where the iron is hot. The first film, which is a film that I will see uh, when it's released in theaters, is a film that's called Air. And Air co-stars and is directed by Ben Affleck. And this is Ben Affleck's fifth film as a director and the fourth film that he both directs and acts in. And as a director, he has brought us such films as Gone Baby Gone, which was um, his feature film debut. He also directed The Town, which was an even better film than Gone Baby Gone. Argo, which was an even better film than those two that I just mentioned. And then in 2016, he directed Live By Night, which was a film that certainly had its weaknesses. It wasn't a terrible film by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it would have been better if Ben Affleck had not started it himself. But in the movie air, it's not the first film in which he's acting alongside Matt Damon, but it's probably, it is the first film in which he's acting alongside Matt Damon that he directed himself. So I'm very interested to see how this movie is. So the movie air follows the history of shoe salesman Sonny Vaccaro, who's played by Matt Damon, and how he led Nike in its pursuit of the greatest athlete in the history of basketball, arguably Michael Jordan. And this movie takes place in the early 80s when Michael Jordan first joined the Chicago Bulls and where he wasn't as revered an athlete or a personality as other players at the time like Dr. J., Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Magic Johnson, and Larry Bird. But it was only a matter of time before he was. Now, we all know, stepping back, that Nike made the right move in naming its um, line of shoes Air Jordans. But in the early 80s, this was a very risky move to put their name on the line to promote an athlete that wasn't quite as auspicious as he would be later on. And of course, in the 90s, Michael Jordan was an unquestionable superstar who really couldn't do anything wrong unless you probably didn't like the movie Space Jam. I did like the movie Space Jam, but I'm just saying. But the movie has a stellar cast in it. Of course, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck I just mentioned. Uh, Jason Bateman also co-stars in the film alongside Viola Davis and Chris Tucker, amongst other people. And Michael Jordan is portrayed here by Damian Delano Young. So Air is a movie that I will see, and I will let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on uh, Wednesday, April 5th, is a movie that I know I definitely will see. I'm very, very excited about seeing this film, but I'm also keeping my expectations in check. The movie is 
the Super Mario Brothers movie. This is a fully animated film that details the story of the Super Mario Brothers on their journey through the Mushroom Kingdom. Now, the reason I'm keeping up my expectations in check is because more movies that are based on video games, most movies absolutely suck. And the first movie to ever be released that was based on a video game was 1993's Super Mario Brothers, starring Bob Hoskins, John Leguizamo, and Dennis Hopper. And that movie absolutely sucked. They took the Super Mario Brothers and they put it in a film like Blade Runner. Now, I think the movie should have been A, animated, and B, based more on the video game than the Super Mario Brothers movie that came out in 1993 was. So, judging from the poster, and I've been trying to avoid the previews of this film like The Plague, like I do every preview, this movie looks like it gets the Nintendo game as well as the Nintendo game's universe right. And honestly, some of the better video video game movies or movies based on video games have really stayed true to the essence of the characters. Sonic the Hedgehog, as well as a sequel, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, did this very well. Now, Sonic the Hedgehog is a movie that blended live action and animation. It doesn't hold a candle to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but for a video game movie, I was very impressed, especially by the first Sonic the Hedgehog film. And the Super Mario Brothers movie, I'm trying to keep my expectations in check, but this movie looks amazing. It's made by Illumination Studios, and the animation is really good, arguably the best of the Illumination movies so far, and that is saying a lot. But rest assured, the Super Mario Brothers movie is a movie that I will see, and I will let you know what I think on a future show. However, there has been some controversy with some of the voice actors who were given uh, roles in this. For example... Chris Pratt is the voice of Mario. And even though Chris Pratt is one of those dynamically uh, charismatic actors, a lot of people were mad that A, somebody who wasn't Italian, and B, the original Italian voice of Mario from the Mario 64 games and the ones that came after that wasn't doing the voice of Mario. And admittedly, I would have liked an Italian guy to have been the voice of Mario. And I also don't exactly love it when I know the names of the actors who are playing the voices of characters. But I'm still going to give the Super Mario Brothers movie a chance. I'm trying to keep my expectations low, but I'll be honest with you, I am very excited to see this film. And I can already tell from the poster that it will probably be better than the 1993 abomination of a film. But of course, we shall see. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host, movie critic Dan Burke. Continuing on with my segment, What's Coming Up Next? And as it turns out, there are a number of films that are subject to being released in theaters on April 7th, 2023. They have a lot of competition facing them from the two movies that are coming out or are subject to be released on April 5th. That is Air and the Super Mario Brothers movie. The latter movie most especially. But there are some films that look to be promising that are coming out or are subject to being released on April 7th, 2023. One of the films is The Pope's Exorcist, which is a horror thriller film starring Russell Crowe. And this movie is inspired actually by the actual files of Father Gabriel Amorth, chief exorcist of the Vatican. I didn't know that the uh, Vatican had an exorcist, so I'm already fascinated by this. But the Pope's exorcist follows a morth who is played by Russell Crowe as he investigates a young boy's terrifying possession and ends up uncovering a centuries-old conspiracy the Vatican has desperately tried to keep hidden. Now, that's interesting how... um, 
this is inspired by actual files, yet the conspiracy that the Vatican tried to keep hidden had more to do with exorcisms and less to do with the reason that the Catholic Church experienced a downfall around 2002, which was the subject of the movie Spotlight. But this movie kind of looks like Constantine in the sense that it's a supernatural thriller that involves the Catholic Church, but it's not one to be taken especially seriously. So there is, of course, Russell Crowe playing a role in this movie, as well as Franco Nero playing the Pope. And that's his name. It's just the Pope, not Pope Francis, not Pope John Paul II, not any other Pope you can name. He is just the Pope. (laughs) Make of that what you will. The movie also co-stars Ralph Ineson, Alex Esso, and other such actors. This is a movie that I may see, but unlike Air and the Super Mario Brothers movie, it's not a film I would go out of my way to see, but if I do see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters is a movie that's called Paint. And this is a movie where Owen Wilson plays a person who has an afro or a perm, depending on what you might think. And he paints on a public radio, excuse me, a public television show. And does Owen Wilson portray Bob Ross? No, he doesn't. And thank God for that, because there will eventually be a movie about Bob Ross's life. But if Owen Wilson plays Bob Ross, I'd be disappointed. Not because I don't like Owen Wilson, but because it would just take me out of the movie to see Owen Wilson portray Bob Ross. He would have to change his voice, and that's not easy to do for somebody who has as iconic a voice as Owen Wilson. But undoubtedly... The character that Owen Wilson portrays, whose name is Carl Nargle, is based very loosely on Bob Ross. But Carl Nargle is a fictional character, first and foremost. But in the movie, he is Vermont's number one public television painter who is convinced he has it all. A signature perm, custom van, and fans hanging on his every stroke. Until a younger, better artist steals everything and everyone Carl loves. The movie is written by and directed by Britt McAdams, who has previously directed, amongst other uh, projects, episodes of shows like Trivia Town, Honesty, and Cat Williams' American Hustle, which is a stand-up comedy special. He's also directed such episodes of shows like Tosh O and uh, I Mom So Hard or hashtag I Mom So Hard. So I believe that this movie, Paint, is his debut as a filmmaker. So I don't know how this movie's going to be. Hopefully it's funny. With Owen Wilson, it's certainly very promising in the sense that it's funny. But the other people who act in the movie include Elizabeth Henry, Paul Cossapod, Sophia Darme Lopez and Steven Root. And that's um, there are other actors who are in this film as well. But Owen Wilson is definitely anchoring this film. So Paint is a movie that I will see. And I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on April 7th is a movie that's called The Portable Door. This is a fantasy And coming out around the same time as Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves is very risky, but it might be a risk that pays off. Who knows? But this movie is about an intern by the name of Paul Carpenter, who's played by Patrick Gibson, who is an intern at a mysterious London firm with unconventional employers, including a CEO who wants to disrupt the ancient magical world with modern corporate practices. I like the description of this film already. So the other actors in the film include Sam Neill of Jurassic Park fame, Christoph Waltz, the two-time Oscar winner, Sophia Wilde, or rather Sophie Wilde, excuse me, who I've seen in other things, and Miranda Otto. So this film probably doesn't hold a candle to Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves in terms of its budget, But who knows? It might be one of those films that is surprising. Plus, it comes from across the pond. 
And it's also an MGM Plus original film, which means that I won't be able to see it unless I've subscribed to MGM Plus, which I don't exactly see myself doing, but uh, I don't know. Anything could happen. If the price is right, I might subscribe to it, but I already subscribe to enough streaming platforms as it is. So The Portable Door may be a film that I will see in theaters, but I'm not counting on it. But if I do see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on April 7th is a movie that's called RMN, three letters. And what it stands for, I don't exactly know, but it's a non-judgmental analysis of the driving forces of human behavior when confronted with the unknown of the way we perceive the other and on how we relate to an unsettling future. This movie is a dramatization, not a documentary, although that sounds like an amazing uh, description of a documentary. But this movie is brought to you by IFC Films. And if I still had cable, I would watch IFC probably obsessively. But in terms of the actors who are in the film, they include Martin Gringor, excuse me, Marin Gringor, Judith Slate, Excuse me, let me start that over. They, the movie stars Marin Grigor, Judith State, and Macrina Barladenu. No actors with whom I'm familiar, but the premise of the film sounds relatively intriguing. So this might be a film that I will see. Who knows? But I'll let you know what I think on a future show if I do, in fact, see it. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.